Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hello. How are you, J.J.? Fantastic. How are you? I'm terrific. Okay, we're going to dive right in. Uh I've heard about this trend. Everything that hipsters do, Uh teenagers and 20-somethings, I'm a bit of an ageist. I'm a cynic. (laughs) But recently, I heard about a trend, and I thought... That makes sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would do yeah. that. Go for it. And it's it. this. They're moving back to flip phones. Really? I'm not kidding. Really? Somebody recently said that they'd come back from Portland, Oregon. Of course it was Portland. Of course it was Portland. <laughs> and that the kids have flip phones. They the won't. You just used the phrase, the kids. They are children. The kids I are went down to phones. Burger Up the other day because uh-huh. my wife placed a to-go order. She waited in the car. I walked in. And I'm like, there are children running this place, <laughs> eating here, and drinking alcohol. I didn't know whether to call the authorities and say, these children... With their flip phones. With their flip phones. Yeah. <laughs> Hasn't hit Nashville yet. No, but it will. It, it will. will. In about no. 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, of, Nashville. <laughs> no offense. But it, it's kind of true. It's funny because it's true. It's true because it's funny. Portland is on the cutting edge of that stuff. But I got to tell you, I was envious I, of the I, flip phone. I'd throw this thing out the window. I would, I mean, I would, except for that I have zero sense of direction. So you and need like, the like, GPS. I would need like the gigantic TomTom on my windshield if I didn't have it on my phone. Like I need directions. I still have a hard time getting to the office. And <laughs> I'm here. not really kidding. If there is an accident and I have to go another way, there's no way. You're not like, getting I, here. Nope. Mm-mm. Tim drove me home the other day and we took one different turn. I literally said, where are we? And he thought I was kidding. No, I I cannot get anywhere without my GPS. So have you had the experience for whatever reason? GPS doesn't work in the town where you've rented a car. I had this experience not very long ago. Yeah, I bought I, a new phone. <laughs> I'm not kidding. If it around. wasn't working, I was like, okay, I need a new phone. I can't. But live. I couldn't remember what people did before GPS. I mean, like <laughs> GPS wasn't working. I'm like. Okay, what is plan B here? Like you just drive around till you see something familiar. Yeah, yeah. And no, then I, I remembered, oh, it was maps. Big Rand McNally map in my car. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I got everywhere with the grids. Apart and from GPS. Yeah. yeah. Here's what I'm getting at. Is there a liability to walking around with all this information? Oh, which is yeah. meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> it's meaningless, this information. I mean, it's fun. It's fun to play Candy Crush. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I mean those are yeah. the games. Yeah, I mean yeah, like but- Twitter. I like Instagram. Yeah. Instagram does keep me connected to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's good and there's bad about having all of that information in your hands at once. I mean, essentially, the power in our computers that are in our phones is equal to the amount of power that was in the computer that put the first man on the moon. Like, that's the comparison yeah. of that that computer, what that computer is capable of doing, and we've got it at our fingertips. So there's some amazing things. I mean, it makes things easier from depositing checks. I scanned an image. I had to email somebody something that I had signed the other day. I was able to scan it on my phone and send it. So there's some great things about having all that in your hands, but there's also some things that you actually lose in the process, and I think sometimes we forget about that. Somebody sent their wife a Valentine's Day card not very long ago, and it said... There's no other person in the world I would rather lay next to and look at my phone with than you. <laughs> and I thought that is the world that we live in. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But I wonder what it's costing us. Well, we, we bring this up, obviously, because our guest today is Greg McEwen. He's the author of the book, Essentialism. Yeah. And he argues that almost everything that is going into your brain is non-essential. Yep. And, of course, that brings up the question, what is essential? And this guy, his book changed my life 
a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, in a major way. Now, I, I need to take it even further. I would love, <laughs> I'd just love to get rid of this phone. I really would. I think it would be a week of detox and then life would be and better. Be good. <laughs> but I, I, I'm connected to it maybe for business reasons. Like, I, I feel yeah. like I, I need to tweet, you know, inspirational quotes and links. And uh-huh. then I feel hooked to this thing. Yeah. But it's connecting me. Even my news feed is hogwash. It's meaningless information. Yeah. It's the media looking to vilify anybody they can possibly vilify in order to get people to click. Yeah. Because villains create clickbait. Yeah. And uh, I don't think we're getting the truth. I don't think we're getting, as Greg would say, essential information. So this is a good interview. Yeah. If you feel like you're being bombarded with nonsense. Well, the thing that struck me is he talks about, there's this piece in there that he talks about how our phones give us everything now. Like we have yeah. everything at our fingertips now. We can order groceries now. We can deposit money now. We can get in touch with somebody now. Any question you have, it's now. And he actually talks about, I'm not going to go into the full thing, but he talks about how that's actually given us a loss of understanding of what now means. You can't and, live in the present. No, because you, you can't live in the now because you're always doing that. And he says by losing our sense of now, we actually even lose a sense of the past and the future. And it mm. is even impacting the way people set goals, which we don't as much anymore. Mm. So it's kind of fascinating when he, he doesn't just talk about essentialism, what a lot of people think of, oh, what's essential, what's not. But really when we choose things that are not essential, how that impacts our current situation, but also how it impacts the way we view the future. Well, it's a fantastic interview. And and this time we did it a little bit differently. We, we kind of got creative with this. The interview is actually on vinyl. <laughs> because we want to get away from these cell phones. We're just, we're just releasing this on vinyl. And then we discovered it's really only about eight people who have who that. Can do that. But what yeah. we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to play the interview on vinyl into a cell phone so that you can listen you can to it on your phone, cell phone. A flip phone. That's right. So pull out your flip phone and listen to this. Here's my vinyl interview with the author of Essentialism, Greg McEwen. Greg, I'm honored to have you on the podcast today. It's so great to be with you. Well, thanks. Your book helped me a ton. It gave me permission to do a lot of the things I needed to do. And the main thing, if I could summarize what I needed to do, I needed to start saying no. Hmm. Is that the feedback you're getting from a lot of folks? Well, I think that it's the thing that grabs people you know, by the lapels and gets kind of in their face even though I always like to distinguish that I wrote a book called Essentialism, not Noism. <laughs> right. And the difference really matters because while it is true that we are novices at no, uh, that we often feel trapped, in fact, between a polite yes on the one hand and a rude no on the other, uh, essentialism isn't about the rude no. It's about learning new skills, new mindset and skill set for figuring out what really is essential. So it's all that middle space, developing a whole new approach to life. That means that the essential things get the resources and the non-essential things can fall out of our lives uh, and be deprioritized so that ultimately we can live a life that really matters. Let me read a little bit from your book here. You say, the overwhelming reality is we live in a world where almost everything is worthless, 
and a very few things are exceptionally valuable. As John Maxwell has written, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. An essentialist, you say, thinks almost everything is non-essential. I say that, and I know that probably 99% of my listeners are nodding their heads, saying amen and agreeing, even as they go through their Twitter feeds and their news feeds, and you realize none of this needs to be in my brain in order for me to do what I'm supposed to do on this planet, and yet we keep feeding our brains that material. Have you stopped doing that? Is this a daily fight for you? I'm asking honestly, do you really wake up and ignore the overwhelming majority of data and input that we encounter that is absolutely unnecessary for me to accomplish what I need to accomplish? Do you, do you live that way? Uh, I, I'm in the essentialist struggle. I'm a struggler. I live in the real world. I'm not sort of on the mountaintop calling down, here's how it all should be done. I'm not in that mode. And, and neither am I just advocating a philosophy that I don't strive for either. So both extremes are not true for me. I'm, I'm in the wrestle. I want to fight for this. This matters to me because I want to live a life uh, of meaning. I don't want to uh, come to the end of my life and discover that I invested in all the wrong things. Gave my life to the trivial many mm -hmm. instead of the vital few. And so unlearning non-essentialism, unlearning a way of thinking that leads people to live a life that's busy but not productive and uh, leaves them stretched too thin at work and at home constantly. Like unlearning that is a lot of work. And learning a new philosophy, a new mindset, essentialism, is a disciplined pursuit. So it's not done in a, in a moment. That's my experience with it. You've got to keep coming back. So if I was to use a metaphor, I think it's, uh, you know, if you are on a plane from San Francisco to New York, as I sometimes am, that plane is off track 90% of the time. But it gets to where it's supposed to, when it's supposed to get there, because it keeps coming back on track. And that is the metaphor I think fits for the pursuit of becoming an essentialist. You're going to be off track. You're going to get pulled into uh, social media updates that don't matter to you. You're going to be a news junkie sometimes when you ought to be focused on other things. That's going to happen. But how quickly can you adjust? How quickly can you come back to this question? Uh, what's important now? And pursue that with passion. In order to know whether or not you're off track and whether or not you should get on track, it seems like the first thing that you've got to know, and there will be some listeners who don't know this yet, is where's New York? Or what is my New York? How do you guide people when you do individual consulting, for example? What is the exercise you take somebody through to decide what New York is in their life? Something that eventually came to me was that, that the design period that we use in life is insufficiently broad. So in most the, the literature that's been written and most of the design classes that exist on helping people to figure out New York, the very maximum period they will talk about is birth till death. Hmm. And that's really broad, right? Like, right. of course, that's far, far broader than just the latest email, the latest text. But eventually, I realized I needed to break the bounds of both sides of that uh, perspective. 
So when I'm working with somebody individually, I begin with, tell me about your grandparents. A hmm. hundred years before, I want a hundred years before. Who are they? What did they choose? What was their legacy to you? What do you remember? And what we're all struck by most of the time is how little is known to answer these questions. Hmm. So even though they have massively impacted us. In most cases, the language we speak is because of their choices. And that's just, that's the most obvious way they impact us. But the, the fact we're alive is because of them. The cultural inheritances, the intergenerational traumas and triumphs that make us who we are, that shape us, are unknown to us. So we're living life with this massively incomplete equation. And so then we work slowly through this. Let's gather more understanding about the intergenerational you. Then we're going to talk about your parents and what was that journey? What do they, what do you remember about them? What did you learn? What were the ups, the downs? The, and, and then you start right at your birth then. Okay, let's move birth through your life. Let's evaluate what's been meaningful, what hasn't, what has taught you, what's been, uh, what have been the major lessons? What do you wish you'd done differently? You know, if you, if you could have it over again, all those things. Then you carry on going forward. Now, not till death. That's insufficient. You've got to break through it. You've got to start thinking about your 100-year vision. So it's 100 years in the past, but now we've got to go 100 years in the future. See, it's so it, – I found it so powerful, so life-changing to imagine and to, to vision life after you. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, of course, it's legacy. But I, I don't even really particularly love that word. It, you know, it doesn't always create the right connotation. It's just imagine that your grandchildren, or if you don't have children, it's, it's people that you've impacted are in the chair answering the same questions you just did about your grandparents, but they're talking about you now. What did they learn from you? Mm-hmm. What do they remember? What's the inheritance? So this kind of tremendously long-term vision starts to help us to discern between the absolutely essential things, the good things, and the total trivial many. And with that perspective, you can start to see that most of what we are consumed with and even concerned with and worried about are things that won't even matter five years from now. They just won't even matter. Most people would, if they were attempting to answer the question that I asked you, they would start with, well, what are my goals and what am I trying to accomplish? And that's too small of a question, it sounds like to you. You're talking about a much deeper level of meaning. You're talking about acknowledging, to some degree, that you are a subplot in a bigger story and understanding your role inside that bigger story. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes, absolutely. Hmm. One of the things that's under attack in un- unintentionally perhaps through social media, smartphones, consumerism, is our sense of narrative. Yeah. So the promise of now, you know, you can have an app for everything on your phone so you can do anything now. You can transfer money in your bank now. You can communicate with anybody now. What One of the unintended consequences of that is that we don't have a sense of now. Hmm. Because it's literally the, the idea that you can do everything now. Well, of course, you can't do even close to everything now. So your sense of now is lost. But what's also lost is any sense of the past. Hmm. 
of perspective, mm-hmm. of what's come before, of where you are in this journey, this big narrative, multi-generational narrative you're a part of, it's just lost. And then you say, well, what about the future? Uh, Time magazine, uh, no, NPR is where I, was, where I heard them referencing it. There's some research that showed that the very literally what we gave up when we got smartphones was long-term thinking and goal setting. Mm. So our narrative of the future is also lost. So we're in, how would I say it? We're in the great lost now. We are not really present in the now. We're constantly distracted. We're constantly pulled off our game even now. The narrative has been lost. We've lost the plot. And so I think that this is so, so real for so many people now. I would maybe put it this way that there's only two kinds of people in the developed world. There's people who are lost and there's people who know they are lost. Uh, it's almost like a matrix moment. You talk about in the book, you know, when you actually break it down, when you understand your overall epic narrative that you're a part of, when you understand your subplot, and then you get down to deciding upon actions, you talk about these three circles, the right thing, the right reason, and the right time. The what am I doing, the why am I doing it, and the when am I doing it. And at the place where all of those three circles overlap, you call it the highest point of contribution. And in, in your book, you say there, there are three questions that you ask. What do I feel deeply inspired by? What am I practically talented at? And what meets a significant need in the world right now? After we break down that we're part of this epic, and after we understand that we're being routinely bombarded and distracted from the overall epic, we actually take ownership of our lives, ownership of our responsibility to the world as living, breathing creatures. I think that comes with a responsibility and even a duty uh, as a human being to contribute to the world. You talk about these three questions as a place to start in terms of analyzing what is my New York? Where am I going to go? Can you elaborate on the right thing, the right reason, and the right time? Yes, and the way to elaborate on it is first to introduce the metaphor of the, of the closet where our closets get packed and they're overfalling it. We can't seem to find anything to wear. And sometimes we think the answer is to have a larger closet. But then if we ever do get a larger closet, we realize that isn't really the problem. That's a temporary fix because there's a habit that we have, a way of living that just keeps adding and never subtracting. And so that's the result of non-essentialism. In the closet of our lives, likewise, we're filling with lots of good things our lives. Most people's lives are full of lots of good things, overpacked, overbrimming with good things. And the answer is not just to shove more in. Hmm. Uh, And it's not just to more efficiently do everything that's in there. It is to use more extreme criteria. So in the closet of our lives, which is what we're really talking about, it's, is this the really the right thing for me to be doing? Or is it just a good thing? Right. Is it an okay thing? Or is it the right thing? Um, instead of asking, could I shove it in somehow? Could I fit it into my schedule? You say, is it the right time to be doing this thing? How much of this is subjective and how much of it is objective? When you say the right thing, could it be true that I have the agency to choose multiple narratives for my life? And there isn't really a right thing. Certainly there are wrong things, and and certainly there are better things than others. But what do I really want to do? Let me give you a a real-world example. I'm going to get some free counseling because I know you're very expensive by the hour. (laughs) You know, right now, and I I think I've got an answer and I'm working out an answer, but I'm a communications guy. So I'm helping people communicate clearly so that their movement gets going. 
three major projects. One is very personal. It's the building of my own company, the scaling up. If I focus on that, I'm going to make millions of dollars and become a more influential person and get greater clients and be working with bigger deals. Another is I'm helping I'm a communications guy on an economic policy that we are hoping that the Trump administration you know, starts using. And, and it could eventually, if it gets passed and keeps going through, give the average middle-class family $10,000 extra per year. That's the second thing. Then the third thing is uh, an organization that is attempting to end the foster care problem in America and get all these kids into foster care and all these kids adopted. Three really terrific things, right? I want to do them all. But I can't do them all right now. Now, I can put them in a certain order, which is my answer, and I can get this done, and then, and then I'm saying no to people, or I'm saying, hey, can you wait a second? I think a lot of people would be listening and say, yeah, I've got the same thing. I've got these kids over here. I've got this business I want to grow. I've got three opportunities to grow the business. How do I analyze this situation and decide not what is the right thing to do, because I don't think there's a wrong decision here. What is the right thing for me? What's the thing that I should be doing next? Walk me through an exercise. Well, of course, coming to high levels of clarity is complex. There's so many moving pieces, you know, and, and nothing in essentialism is suggesting that we ought to oversimplify things. We've got to find simplicity on the other side of complexity. We've got to grapple with all of this. And it's messy and it's uncertain because the future is such an uncertain place. So the whole process is messy. But what I would be recommending to you is that you just don't stop at 70% clarity. You know, you've obviously already done significant work on thinking through what matters to you, on, on identifying causes that you believe speak to you. And now you've got these three different projects that you've got. And so I don't know what level of clarity you describe yourself at, but let's say it's 80% now. So don't stop. A lot of people stop there. And so then they go, okay, well, they're all meaningful. So I've got to jump in. Don't stop. Keep going. I, I, you know, I call it the 90% rule. Like you've got to keep going until it's a 90% or above. You're really sure this is the thing. And it's so much the thing. I'm willing to give up something that's really good and really speaking to me. I'm really pulling on my heartstrings, but I'm still not going to do it because this thing is the essential one. I'm grappling with this too. So, so six months ago. But what, 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 what I want to clarify for the listeners: what, what you basically said is, Don, you haven't pressed hard enough in to what really matters to you and what your story is really about, because those yeses and those noes should be more clear than they currently are. Is that what you're saying? They can become. More they can clear. become. Yes, more clear. yes, it's good restate. There's more clarity on offer than we are willing to purchase. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Greg McEwen in just a moment. Well, last week's segment was such a hit. Kula Callahan is back. She's one of our coaches. She has spent hundreds of hours on the phone with business leaders, mostly talking to them about their websites. Why isn't my website getting me more business? And you have found a lot of business leaders struggle with the same problems. Last week, we talked about the fact that they're using too much text on their website 
This week, you want to talk about the fact that a lot of that text doesn't make sense. What That's do you mean right. by that? One of the main problems we see is that most businesses on their website use language that nobody outside their company understands. All the time. We see it all the time. It drives me crazy. It does drive you crazy. <laughs> and you say in our workshops all the time, you want to talk to your customer's squirrel brain. And I don't mean that to offend you, but really, people aren't understanding what you're saying on your website no. when you use all this they technical They use their squirrel jargon. brain. They're, they're, it's a primitive sort of interaction, and they're looking for something that makes sense really quickly. Right. And all this technical jargony language that people use just doesn't engage people and doesn't resonate. And if you don't capture your customer's mind within the first five seconds of them reading what's on your website, you lose them. And, and they- you know, as a coach, whenever you open up somebody's website, if you ever have the question, well, what does that mean? They failed. Correct. There should never be a question, what does that mean? In fact, this morning, I sent an email to one of our clients, amazingly successful guy, and he's got this new venture, and he put up a website. And above the header, or on the header, the big banner text was this sort of vague sentiment that didn't make any sense. And then when I thought about it for about two minutes, it didn't make any sense still. Well, who's going to give you another five minutes to figure out what in the world they're talking about? Nobody. There's a website that I can think of right now that above a paragraph, they had the bold text that said, make it count. Make what count? That's right. Yeah, nobody <laughs> it's knows. A, exactly. Nobody knows. And so that, that can't be on a website. That is costing you money. money. You know, here's the thing. If you spent two days trying to figure out a tagline or something to put at the top of your website, you have to understand nobody is going to spend two days trying to understand it. That's right. You really just want to say it as clearly as possible so that nobody is confused. What tips do you give people who are struggling with inside language or vague language? So if you think about the knowledge that you have of your product or service on a scale from one to 10, you are at about a 10. Your customer's knowledge of your product or service is at about a two. So if you can trim down and simplify the language you use on their website to about a two or a three on that scale, you'll see more engagement because people will understand. Customers buy at level two. That's right. And until you talk to them at level two, they're not going to buy. Right. So we do the hard work of simplifying it to level six and we don't get any business. Why? Because they're not at six, they're at two. That's right. Well, listen, if you want to clarify your message, if you want to simplify the language that you're using, if you want to stop using inside language, stop using vague language, and find the words that will get customers to respond, attend one of our workshops, storybrand.com. We have workshops in Nashville, Tennessee, where you can get away for two days and just think about the words that you use to talk about your product. Every one of your customers found out about your product through words. Somebody said something to them, they read something, it's all in the words. If you're using the wrong words, you're losing customers. Go to storybrand.com and sign up for one of our workshops today. Okay, a couple of things, because I want to get to some some real practical stuff. A couple of the great things I learned from your... I read this book, I read it at least a year ago, and... You know, the idea of opportunity cost is something that I think every listener understands. You know, if you go do this thing, what's it costing you to have done that rather than to have done something else? You state that even more clearly. It's perhaps the simplest way I've ever heard it stated, and that is this. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. We usually think, should I do this or shouldn't I, without thinking, okay, but what is this costing me? What am I saying no to in order to say yes to this other thing? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? If someone is simply asking in like a vacuum, as if there's no other reality, is this thing a good thing? And if the answer is yes, that that's now they've, it's made it through their tests. Right. And the answers are yes. So they're going to be endlessly stressed out, just endlessly. 
because their life's already cram-packed full. So it's completely insufficient for being able to really be pursuing the things that matter. And so, yes, of course, we have to recognize every time we're saying yes, it's going to push something out on the other side of the closet. And so what what I'm really recommending to people is uh, first, you've got to get everything out of the closet, everything. And you evaluate each item. Is this really the best use of me? Is this really the thing that's going to matter for the long run? And if it's not, pass it. Start to minimize your contribution to that area. Maybe eventually you eliminate it altogether. What does this look like? Is this is this a, a yellow tablet with, with you just writing everything that you're involved in, everything that you're worried about? Yes. What, is that what it is? Yes. You use the post-it note exercise. Get a whole desk in front of you. Put everything out. Get it all out like you would with a closet. And, and then don't just start evaluating each thing straight away. You then have to get this vision. You've got to do some of that long-term work. It's all out of your head, but now you've got to say, because otherwise, if you're not careful, you might just fill your life back up with things that are only good mm-hmm. and to efficiently do what shouldn't even be done in the first place. Uh, so you've got to then do this visioning work so that you really start to see what it's really about for you, what your narrative's really about. You've got to take space. I mean, think of Gandhi, who spent a whole year of his life, a year, trying to understand what was going on and what was essential in India and why it was possible that so many Indians could be controlled by so few British. And it took him a year of exploration to figure that out. And by doing it, he found that the answer was salt. They controlled the production of salt. They could control the whole food chain. And that was where the idea Mm. came for him to walk across India, the demonstration of civil disobedience and make salt on the beaches. He was able to bring independence to the Indian people. And there's no way he could have done that if he just tried to do everything that was on his plate already in in front of him. Mm. So it was by creating the space to get the long-term vision that then he could look at everything on the to-do list, so to speak, on the post-it note and see which things that you just say, no, we're not doing it. We don't have to do it. We don't have to do everything that everyone else is doing. Well, it brings up my next question, and and I really want our listeners to get this. There's a difference between having to and choosing to. And for me, that's about personal agency. We've all understood the research that those who believe that they have their own power, that believe that they have their own agency, are much healthier than people who have an external locus of control. That is, they give their decision-making and fate, if you will, to external sources. I have a feeling you're dancing around this idea of, no, you don't have to do things. You are choosing to do things. Can you help us understand that idea? Yes. I mean, we do believe because we've been, it's been sold to us that there are things you have to do. You just have to do everything you're doing. And as soon as you believe that, you will become a function of the expectations of our times. And we've already said the expectations of our times are absurd. <laughs> We're in an era of opinion overload. Right. You know, that idea might have worked 50 years ago. Maybe. I'm not sure it did, but we'll just do what everyone else is doing. But it certainly doesn't work today. We're not even close to being able to just do everything everyone is doing and everyone's expecting us to do. It's 10 times, 100 times more than the time we have available. So we've got to reawaken our sense of choice. Of course, there are things that you do not wish to say no to because of the consequences. So that's a better way of thinking about it. It says, well, what's if every time someone says, I have to do this, you can just say, well, what's the consequence if you don't? Hmm. 
right. so that you're facing what the real thing is you don't want to face. Mm-hmm. And then you can start to evaluate that. Well, is there consequence you're expecting? Is it true? Is it real? On, on Saturday, my wife and I were grappling with something. We'd signed up our son for a for sporting activity. And, uh, and as we started to look at the time commitments, all these commitments on Sunday, and we never do sports on Sunday, and suddenly they've got all these commitments on Sunday and two practices through the week and all this all on top of everything else. And we thought to ourselves, well, we don't have to. So what are the consequences? Well, maybe we'll mess this person around. Maybe we'll mess the coach around. We've just barely signed up. Maybe our, you know, our son will be disappointed. And so then we were able to evaluate that against reality. We, hey, son, come in here. Let's talk about this. We thought he'd be really disappointed, maybe even a little devastated. Maybe we just talked to him about it and said, okay, here's, here's what the costs are. This is what the expectations seem to be. And he said, uh, he said, oh, he says, uh, he says, it's no big deal to me, this one. I'm happy to do it, but if there's any kind of problem with it, it's just fine. Oh, we were so surprised. Hmm. It was just nothing. And then he has some things he really cares about. There's other sport that he really wants to do. He would not be so easy about. But there we go. We were so surprised. We called the coach. I mean, he was fine. He had one extra player beyond what he needed anyway. It was no problem. Wow. I'm not saying everyone is like this, but I am saying once we start to say, well, what's the consequence of not doing this thing? We start to be able to evaluate it, prosecute it. Sometimes the cost's massive. And so we say, well, I'm choosing to do that. I don't want the consequences of not doing it. But sometimes the consequences are much lower than we anticipate they'll be. We never get to that because we're just in the have-to mindset. Do people get addicted to distraction? Is there something that people are getting out of being distracted? I think that you know, if you're at a cocktail party and somebody says uh, within earshot of you, oh, I'm just insanely busy, it's just been really crazy – do you hear that differently than the rest of us might hear it? The rest of us might go, wow, this is a really important person or something like that. And you probably hear, no, this is a person who is coping or numbing out with distraction. Do you see the world that way? I remember a, a woman said to me one time, oh, Craig, I'm so busy. Uh, I've just slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks. And she was smiling. She was happy about proud it. Of it. She was proud she of was it. Definitely proud of it. She was, I think, showing off. Yeah. Uh, she, she didn't say, but she almost seemed to be saying to me, look, I hate to break it to you, Greg, but I'm just more important than you are. You, know, you got to sleep a proper seven, eight hours, but I, I have too many demands on me. I'm so important. So, yes, that was a moment for me of, of realization that maybe in the past at some point I would have thought that was itself an achievement or or I wouldn't have picked up on it, but the essentialist mindset does reveal a lot of these false mindsets, false ideas, because that's that's really the problem with non-essentialism. There's only really one problem with it, and it's that it's a lie. Mm. <laughs> it's a non-essentialism teaches incessantly this idea. If you can fit it all in, then you can have it all. So that logic, that equation for success implies that all I need to do is do more and more and more. And if I do more and more and more, then I will get more and more and more. But what you actually find is that is not what that behavior produces. And so it's, it's a con. We've been sold a bill of goods. Hmm. And so we have to unlearn non-essentialism, which, I mean, you can't do that until you start to see it. And that's really the beginning place with essentialism, with the book and everything. It's just to, it's just to name what's going on around us. And once you name it and see it, you start to be, in a way, disgusted by it. I mean, I, sometimes I joke about non-essentialism, but sometimes it really infuriates me hmm. to think about the cost of it, to think about 
the damage of it and what it does to people's lives and to their stress levels and to the relationships in their lives and to the things that really matter most. They get sacrificed for the stuff that matters least. I mean, this is, this is an enormous cost. And so as we start to see the problem, we can start to do something about it. We can start to say, well, I'm not believing it anymore. I can see the real results. So now I'm open to an alternative and the alternative, the way out is the way of the essentialist. You talk about in the book, you, you share a story of when you were young and the first time you learned that some efforts yield higher results than others. You had a paper route and you were also washing cars and you realized that if you quit the paper route and wash more cars on a certain day of the week, you could make six times the amount of money. That seems obvious to me, to a lot of our listeners, I think, and yet it's not obvious to many. I remember making a strategic business decision to change a little bit of my team structure, not let go of somebody, to move in a different route, and it caused a, maybe some friction in a relationship because I decided I no longer wanted to chase the $5,000 sale. I wanted to chase the $50,000 sale. Because there was just more opportunity for the exact same effort if we created this product and went over here and tried to deliver this product rather than this other product. In other words, to stop trying to chase dinner and start trying to build a garden. Does that make sense? It does make sense. What do you say to folks when you see them doing things that there's just much more opportunity out there? There are things they can do that would yield much higher results. What's your advice to those folks? Well, this is, uh, I think you mentioned earlier on, the idea of uh, there's a very few things that are essential in it. Most of the rest is tri- just complete noise, meaningless, valueless. Right. That single idea is something that people comprehend and have probably used in various ways in their lives. But I think it's underutilized. You can just keep coming back to that idea. It's so powerful to keep relearning to not just learn it, apply it, and go, wow, see, I know I'm more successful in this thing and that thing than I was before for the same effort. No, keep going. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you've achieved something, as soon as you achieve a level of success, you, you're asking yourself, you're not committing to everything, but you're asking yourself, what would be 10 times more valuable than what I'm now doing? Mm. You're always asking, what's the unit? To even just to ask the question, just to yes. posit the question over and over, what would be more valuable? What am I not seeing because I'm distracted by this ringing phone? What's the whole next platform for contribution? So six months ago, I was actually classic non-essentialism trap that I was in uh, because success traps are harder to get out of than failure traps. And the success trap I was in was that essentialism is done better than anybody could have imagined. Very lucky, very blessed really too. So what does that produce? It produces a whole cycle for the next book. Uh, the agent would like the next book. The publisher's ready for the next book. I mean, I've spent years trying to you know, figure out a way where I could live a life teaching and writing. So, I, of course, I want to do the next book. Of course I do. And I've got tons of ideas. So that's not the problem. But when I do the deep work, when I go beyond the 70 80%, yes. When I say, what's the 90%, yes, I can feel clearly that I'm not supposed to do the next book. And see, it's much harder to say no to that now because it's even more valuable this time. There's a higher contribution it will make of good, potential good in the world. There's a, there's a higher fee that I'll be paid to do it. So everything is now built to say, keep doing this in this level. Keep doing, just do another one and then do another one. And I'm not criticizing anybody who does that, but I know that the next thing I'm supposed to do, and I'll tell you what it is, although I don't normally share it, is I think I'm supposed to do a television show. I'm supposed to do something on a television platform. And I just, I tell you what, 
Six months ago, there was nothing to support that from a logical point of view. Like I've not spent the last 20 -ish years learning about that. So I've learned about publishing. But six months ago, there was this decision point. Will you try and do both? That's what I kind of been doing for the few months previous. Try and do both, a little bit of both. Maybe keep working on the book and the back burner, keep working on this. And, and finally, it was clear as anything. No, you, you're going to end up either not doing either of them or not doing either of them very well if you try and do both. It's a classic non-essentialist trap, like I mentioned. As a finally kill it, kill the beast. We're not doing the book. That was hard. Oh, my goodness, that was hard. Hmm. Say yes to the TV show, the uncertainty of it, but, but the possibility that you can make 100 times the contribution potentially. So, so then right after that decision, Steve Harvey has read Essentialism and writes a blog. Essentialism changed my life. And so I see this blog, and I, if I hadn't made the decision, that would have just been, wow, that's cool. That's a fun shout-out. Right. Move on with projects. No, because the decision had been made, the strategic trade-off had been made, it was all about, well, let's see if there's an opportunity there. And the publishing company helped to set up an appointment with him. And so we did a show, and it was by far the best thing I've done on television. See, with the audience and the interaction, it was fabulous. And he said, look, come and do another show. So I did a second show. Then let's do an essentialism life makeover. And so we went, took someone from the audience and showed them on television how the, the before and after and w working how it would really work in someone's life, a busy working mom in this case. And so that went so well that they've asked me to come again. So we've done it. We're about to do another show in, a, in the next couple of weeks. Then the big t uh, the agency, uh, WME, says, oh, we'd like you to speak on essentialism. And they're like, they represent all television and movie actors, like some of the top people in the business. Uh, they, they represent Oprah and Steve Harvey, as it turns out. But that was all spontaneous or so-called. I believe completely that the intention the clarity that came from killing the beast that meant so much to me, you know, in order to pursue what was a 90% yes, I sure, yes, that's the right path, is what has caused the effect that I've seen. And I can hardly believe what has happened in six months. I just, I mean, I, tomorrow I am going to LA to meet with producers to talk about, you know, potential shows. I don't know what will happen in the next six months, but I know this, every time I have killed something that was an 80% to pursue it, something that was a 90%, things move and move fast because you can see them. And and so my test is going to be, okay, so we pursued this, this show. Let's hope that it's successful. Might be a complete bust. Maybe we don't even get to do the show, but let's assume it's a big success. Maybe we get a hit show, like it's just beyond our wildest dreams. The test will happen again. Do you just do another show? Or is there something else you're supposed to do? You see, it's all about asking this highest contribution and being willing to sacrifice, to cut or to kill something else that's good in order for something even better to come forth. Greg, that's so inspiring. I think our listeners are now inspired. The book is Essentialism, and I read it. It was life-changing for me. It really freeing would be the word. I want you, if you wouldn't mind, leave us with just the first three very practical things that we can do. And, and, and I realize there aren't phases of this. There may not be baby steps. You know, you told us, get out of yellow pad, do an inventory, write down everything that is in your closet. What can you get rid of right now? That might be step one. What are a couple other things that we can do to head toward a life that is not burdened by distraction, that is clear, that has a clear narrative, that is connected to a greater, more epic plot. What are the next couple things that we can do? Um, let me 
answer this in a slightly different way, if you don't mind. Um, I eventually developed a 21-day essentialism challenge. It's a one-page, very simple document, and I'm happy for you to just send, you know, make that available to everybody who's listening. And so that's that's I think the thing to do. And uh, you know, each of them are very easy things. They're very doable. And so if somebody simply just says, okay, every day I'm going to check one of these things off, they'll find that they've made some quick wins and that it isn't so crazy to imagine a different kind of life. Uh, let me share what the first thing is uh, on that list. And, and it's just simply this, that every day you make a list of six, maybe three personal, three professional, the most important things, put it in priority order. Then you cross off the bottom five. <laughs> and you're only really metaphorically crossing off the bottom five, but you're really saying that thing, that most important thing is where we're going to spend, invest our energies until it's either done or we've made the progress that we can make on it. Then you ask, in a way, the question again. You're saying, okay, well, maybe number two item is the most important next item that could be. So you work on number two, that becomes your new number one. It's asking and answering what's important now, which is a nice little acronym because that's WIN. It's a WIN. You want to have another win, another what's important now moment. And so I think that when I've done that, which I do most days, make my list of six, put it in priority order, keep working on the first item. My day seems to expand. Hmm. You use the word freeing. Mm -hmm. And this is the daily ritual that it creates a sort of increased freedom for me. When I don't make the list, I still have a full day, but it feels different. It's more frantic. It's more frenetic. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my sense of control changes, my sense of discipline falters, and the quality of my life diminishes, and also just what I focus on has changed. So that's quite a lot of difference for what is really a very small, simple practice I think everybody listening can do. That's fantastic, Greg. Greg, I'm so grateful for your time. I think our listeners have learned an enormous amount from this. Again, the book is Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. You can find it at almost any bookstore. And apparently, you're going to be able to turn on your television pretty soon and watch Greg uh, change people's lives in that way. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I know that uh, you of all people, (laughs) when you give us your time, you've said that we are important uh, in the story that you are trying to tell. So we're thankful. Thank you ever so much for the opportunity. If you think your life is slowly getting out of control and you are not sure what is essential anymore, Greg has given our listeners a gift, which is the Essentialism 21-Day Challenge. Each day you'll be challenged to do something practical in order to start living like an essentialist. You heard Greg give this example during the interview, but the first day is day one, write down the most important six activities for today. Put them in a priority order and now cross off the bottom five. And this is just the beginning. You get all 21 days for free. Go right now to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. That's buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. All right. Well, I learn something every time I talk to Greg, every time I read one of his books or listen to him. It gets to the core of my heart because we don't get a big window to live through. And if we're filling our brains and filling our time with stuff that's not essential, I mean, what a beautiful question to ask. What's essential? Yeah. What's unnecessary? And the reality is there's a lot that is unnecessary. And so I'm grateful for that. Thank you for listening to our vinyl recording of the uh, interview with Greg McEwen. Yeah, thank you for listening to the podcast. um, Thank you for listening to the podcast. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast. Oh, I get, yeah, I get it. Thank you for listening no, to the podcast. No, we get it. Yeah, I've broken record. Thank you for listening to the podcast. JJ, we get it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for the everybody. <laughs> That's a dad joke. <laughs> More proof that you don't actually have to I'm have kids old. to have no. a really bad yes. sense of humor. Yes, so true. <laughs> <laughs> proof. Well, we've got, an, <laughs> we've got an amazing interview next week with Carrie Green. She lives south of Manchester. And she started this organization called the Female Entrepreneur Association. And she actually started it because she was a female entrepreneur out of university. Mm-hmm. She was starting a business. And she was lonely. She just wanted other she people wanted to other talk people to. to be around yeah, community. it was really interesting. Yeah. And she's just this very sweet, humble, very successful woman in the UK who's building this massive tribe of female entrepreneurs that is a global movement. I'm telling you, she's really fantastic. So cool. And so I'm going to tease this a little bit. I just want you to hear a little bit of Carrie's wisdom so you're paying attention next week when we release the podcast. Here's a little clip from Carrie. Just go above and beyond. So many people don't think to go above and beyond like you're not just like an ordinary life like when you go into a shop or when you do anything people forget because we're just living our lives but when you bump into an experience where someone has thought enough or cares enough about you to go above and beyond it literally knocks you back and you go and tell so many people about that experience because you're so wowed by it and I feel like when people when entrepreneurs business owners when they set about to put that at the heart of everything like how can i wow and delight my audience what can i do that they are gonna love when you start asking yourself that question on a daily basis it's incredible what you can create um that's how you build a raving tribe of fans and followers who absolutely love what you do Tune in again next week and you can hear the full interview with Carrie Green. By the way, if you're just getting started in business or if you feel like your business is kind of a quarter million dollars or less and you'd like to see it double, triple, quadruple, that's where her sweet spot is. I mean, she just gives you the practical tools to scale that thing up. So again, next week, it's Carrie Green. JJ, this has been really fun. Very fun. I consider you essential. Oh, thank you. In my flip phone, you would be, like, if you held down the three, uh, it would call you. You are the flip phone of my life. Is that what you're... <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, like, on the speed dial, yes. you'd get one Aww. of the nine digits. Thanks, Don. And I love doing this podcast with you. So fun. I also love the music of Andrew Bell, yes. who comes in and out of this podcast. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. And I consider you the Building a Story Brand podcast listeners. You are definitely speed dial one <laughs> through 75,000. And I will certainly be calling you soon. Let's do the flip phone thing. Let's join the hipsters. I'm in. I'm in. I'm throwing it out. Okay. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening.